0: Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Tara Carter, a victim of a serious betrayal by the people she trusted. This case has twists, turns, and a selection of shady characters that prioritize money over morals. A temporary housing situation mixed with a long-running fraud scheme created the perfect trap for such a kind young woman. So before we get started today, let's hear today's terrifying tidbit. According to FBI.gov, the total cost of insurance fraud, excluding health insurance, is estimated to be more than $40 billion per year. That means insurance fraud costs the average U.S. family between $400 and $700 per year in the form of increased premiums. There are a couple different schemes that insurance fraudsters like to take advantage of. First up, there's premium diversion, which is actually done at the hands of insurance agents. They receive an insurance claim and instead of sending the premiums to the underwriter, the agent keeps the payout for themselves. Another version of this is when people sell insurance without a license, collect premiums, but never actually pay out the claims that are sent to them. There's also workman's compensation fraud. Although there's the obvious way for a worker to commit this type of fraud, it can also occur on the side of the insurance provider. Sometimes companies will say they provide workman's comp at a lower price, but instead they just steal the insurance premiums and never actually provide any type of insurance. The case we are going to cover today depicts an even more nefarious method of insurance fraud. So let's get started. Our story today takes place in Patterson, Passaic County. Although niche.com for some reason categorizes it as a suburb, I think we all know Patterson is a legit city. It has a population of almost 160,000 people and about 75% of residents rent their homes. Most Patterson residents have just a high school education and has a median household income of $48,500, which is about $20,000 lower than the national average. Patterson differs from most of our other stories because not only is it a city, but also crime does happen here. Pretty regularly, actually. It has a C- for crime and safety, and it exceeds the national average of assaults and murders by about three times each. But don't let these statistics fool you. Patterson has so much beauty in its diversity, countless cuisine options, historic buildings, lush parks, thriving nightlife and events, and the Great Falls National Historic Park, which is definitely a must-see. This city is filled with so many cool and inviting people, just like the subject of our story today. Tara Carter was born on October 12, 1976, in Patterson. Her mother was heavily involved in the church, and her father worked many hours. Nevertheless, the family was very close-knit and made it a point to always spend a lot of time together. Tara and her older sister, Rosie, were pretty much attached at the hip. They did everything together. Girl Scouts, choir, overlapping friend groups... Rosie described her little sister as friendly, very social, and could make friends with just about anybody. She had a positive and pleasant demeanor that just attracted people to her. In the mid-80s, Tara's closest friend was a girl she met at school named Wendy Payne. They were always playing at each other's houses. Wendy's parents were Celestine and Alfonza Payne, and she had two sisters and a brother. Her father, Alfonso, worked as a driver for Tuxedo Enterprises, and Celestine was a stay-at-home mom. In the early 90s, Alfonso was sick with a mysterious illness. No one really knew what was wrong with him. In September of 1991, he was found dead on the street in the Bunker Hill neighborhood. Because he was in a part of town that was rife with drug sales and he had a high concentration of various drugs in his system, no one investigated any further. His death was ruled accidental. The Carter supported the pains during this tragic time. Still in 1991, there were some location and job changes in the Carter family. The mother got a job in Alabama and she and Tara moved there. The father still had his job in new jersey and rosie stayed with him tara met a dude in alabama at school and they started dating unfortunately at age 14 tara gets pregnant unsurprisingly the young couple broke up after the birth of their daughter but tara kept her her father then took some time off of work and moved to alabama with tara and her mom rosie in the meantime was staying with her friend in new jersey now it's the mid-90s Tara's is 18 and she's missing home once her dad's job was transferred to albany georgia and her mom went with him, she decided to move back to Patterson. Tara's mom ended up taking her baby and and gaining full custody over her because she knew Tara wasn't ready for that type of responsibility. She knew her daughter just wanted to live her life as a free young woman. Being back in town, Tara reached out to her close family friends, the Paines. Lucky for her, Celestine had been renting out rooms in her home to tenants. So she offered for Tara to rent the first floor of her house. These two families always had each other's backs. The Pains were happy to have Tara around again. Without the weight of her young child to care for, Tara had the ability to really hone in her skills as a hairstylist. She and Rosie planned to move back to Georgia to live with their parents that weekend of March 4th. Rosie wanted to go to a concert the Friday before they left, but when the time came for the concert, she couldn't get in touch with Tara. She assumed that her sister was just busy, so she went on ahead to the concert. The next morning, Rosie and some friends went looking for Tara, but they couldn't find her anywhere so they reported her missing to the Patterson police. Around 11 a.m. on March 4th, 1995, at Eastside Park in Patterson, two joggers came across a sleeping bag. Eastside Park is a regular park, nothing really special or terrifying to write home about, hence why there were people just casually jogging by. The joggers inspect closer and see a pair of red sneakers and some pants sticking out. One of them opened the sleeping bag and their eyes fell upon the horror of a dead body. They immediately called the police. The body had massive blunt force trauma to the back of the head, but oddly, there was no blood in or around the sleeping bag in which it was found. The police concluded that the murder had to have happened elsewhere and the park was just the dumping place. The body had no ID, but crime scene investigators gathered that she was tall, about 18 to 19 years old, and around 130 pounds. A medical examiner in Newark was able to fingerprint the body at the autopsy and they confirmed its identity. Tara Carter. Although the records had shown that Tara lived on Clark Street in Patterson, two detectives talked to the superintendent of the building and learned that she had been living on Jefferson Street with the Paines. So the cops head over to Jefferson Street and Celestine answered the door. She confirmed that Tara lived there with her, but she wasn't home at the time. She gave them Rosie's address, assuming she must be there. The police then tell Celestine that there's been a murder because they hadn't even let the family know yet. Upon a quick inspection of the home, there was no blood that was immediately obvious, but no one at that point had been crossed off the list of suspects. On March 6, 1995, the police went to interrogate Rosie. They asked her if she's related to Tara Carter and she confirms that she's her sister. The stepfather of the friend she was staying with came out because there were police at his door. The police show him the crime scene photos and he identifies a girl in the photos as Tara Carter. The cops now tell Rosie there's been a homicide and reality sets in. Rosie just burst into tears, trying desperately to grasp the severity of the situation. Tara wasn't missing, she had been murdered. They were so close and they loved each other so much. Rosie felt like she had failed in her job of protecting her little sister. The police circled back around to the Paines. They requested that Celestine, her son Aubrey, and the youngest daughter all head down to the police station to answer some questions. The cops didn't think much of Celestine. She was just a middle-aged mom and didn't seem to have any motivation to kill. She had known Tara for about 10 years by this point and saw her as part of the family. Because of a trip down to South Carolina, Celestine didn't know where Tara had gone that evening. Celestine had left that night at 11 p.m. on March 3rd, that Friday, and came back early Monday morning. Detectives come back to Jefferson Street because that's the last place Tara was seen. Celestine's cooperative and lets them go through her stuff. She hands them Tara's suitcase, but there was nothing of note in there. Celestine recalls that Tara kept some of her stuff in the basement as well. Detectives come across a dried blood stain on the floor, so they follow the trail up to the support beams and discovered that the blood had seeped through the floor upstairs. This all but confirmed a murder had occurred in that house. The cops alert Celestine to their discoveries and their suspicions. She comes back with, If Tara was killed here, I'm going to be the first to know about it. And well, yeah, she was the first to know about it. They told her as soon as they came to that conclusion. The cops proceed to call the forensic team to comb through the whole house. The CSI unit and crime scene detectives pull up in search to find the source of the blood. The same closet they had originally went through to find her belongings hid the source of blood. There was a pile of clothes on top of the blood stain to obscure it. The team goes all out. They cut pieces of the floor out and scraped and swabbed floorboards, carpeting, items from the basement, and they tested for blood. But even after all of that, they still can't figure out exactly where in the house Tara was killed. Because the killer did such a good job of covering their tracks, The police had a very strong feeling that Tara's death was not the result of a hookup gone wrong or a stranger randomly killing her. Who was going to put in that much effort into concealing a murder and cleaning up somebody else's house? How could they do this and no one else who lived there noticed a stranger rummaging through their cabinets to find cleaning supplies? This was undoubtedly someone Tara knew. Luckily for the cops, the killer hadn't accounted for the blood dripping through to the basement. Now the police had to determine who had access to the house. There were many options. Celestine had four children who had friends, as well as various tenants who were always coming and going. Something strange the police found was a life insurance policy for a man named Eugene Cooper, and Celestine Payne was the beneficiary. Patterson police look back about six months in their records, and they find that Eugene Cooper had been stabbed in 1994. He was on life support. This was attempted murder. By the time the detectives got to interview him at the hospital when the crime had been committed... Eugene had left and they didn't know where he was for a while. Fortunately, police were able to track him down and he identified a man named Charles Darby as his assailant, a man who frequented Celestine's residence where Eugene was a tenant. On the night of the attack, Eugene left the house with Charles. Charles had his foot up on a bench and was pretending to tie his shoe, but in reality, he had one of Celestine's knives in his sock. He turned around and stabbed Eugene, then ran off into the night. Eugene managed to crawl to a bridge and get an ambulance to save him. Sadly, Police couldn't find a man named Charles Darby anywhere, so they're not totally sure where to go from here. On March 9th, 1995, detectives get a call from someone who tells them that a guy named Original had killed Tara. Original was the nickname of 27-year-old Edwin Morrison, Tara's boyfriend. After hearing that the cops were out looking for him, he voluntarily came down to the police department to tell them that he was at a friend's house during the murder. His alibi checked out, so he was eliminated as a suspect. The police are like, okay, another dead end. Let's go back to Eugene and investigate further into his relationship to Celestine. They find Eugene on March 10th and ask him what the situation was with him and Celestine. He told him that she had charged him extraordinarily high rent for the area in a house that wasn't that nice where he didn't even have his own separate space. She was charging him $800 a month in the mid-90s in Patterson. That alone shows a high degree of greed from the vulnerable. The life insurance policy the police had come across was actually fraudulent. It had Eugene Cooper's name on it, but he never signed it. His name was forged. Celestine had been pressuring him to change his life insurance at his job so that she would be the beneficiary, but he pushed back and said it was for his mom. This was already a strange ask because why would you have your landlord, whom you barely know, as your life insurance beneficiary? Especially instead of a family member? What could her reasoning have been? The police also learned that a man named Charlie Pincham had dated Celestine's daughter, Wendy, and often hung around the house. They began to ponder if Charlie Pincham and Charles Darby were in fact the same person. The names were similar and they were both around Celestine's home during the same timeframe. The police showed Eugene a lineup of photos and he picked out Charlie Pincham as his assailant. They went and arrested Charlie at his mother's house for attempted murder and identified the weapon. Charlie admitted to the crime but he also said that the attack was Celestine and Wendy's idea. They promised him $60,000 from Eugene's forged insurance policy. Apparently, that's all his life was worth to these people. Charlie also let police know that Celestine tried to get him involved in Tara's murder, but he refused to go through with that one. He claimed he came over to the house to help Celestine pack to go to South Carolina. In his version of events, he watched Celestine and her son Aubrey drag Tara's body across the house and throw her in the closet. Aubrey had barked at Charlie to leave the home while Celestine was sitting there smoking a cigarette, satisfied and smug. There was also an insurance policy on Tara Carter with Celestine as a beneficiary. Detectives swiftly get arrest warrants for Celestine and Aubrey. They were trying to leave town, but police found and arrested them anyway. Celestine yelled out, They think I killed that child? I'm going to tell them exactly who did. By this point, Celestine is being held at the Passaic County Jail. When she found out Aubrey was being charged with Tara's murder, she knew the truth had to come out. She admitted to conspiring to kill Tara. She was aware that they knew of the insurance scams, but she did attempt to minimize her role in the scheme. As I said before, it's so weird to be the beneficiary of someone's life insurance to whom you have no relation, so that alone pinned her as a scammer. According to Celestine, while Tara was curling her hair at the kitchen table, Charles came up behind her and struck her in the head with a crowbar. Audrey had come home with a sack of crabs he wanted to cook, but Celestine and Charles yelled at him to stay outside, so he just hung the bag on the door and went to a friend's house, completely oblivious to the crime occurring inside. The cops then go to Charlie and they're like, Hey, so Celestine's story directly contradicts yours. You want to tell us the truth now? He broke down and he said, She used me. Celestine used me. He admitted that he did in fact murder Tara. Aubrey had nothing to do with it. He neither participated in her murder nor the disposal of her body. Now, this is the part that just broke me. Wendy had been pushing him towards murdering Tara for quite a while. What made it even worse is that Wendy impersonated Tara when they went down to the insurance agency to take out the policy. They did the same with Eugene's policy and I assume they used Charlie as the impersonator for him. Charlie said he and Celestine moved the body to the bedroom so that they could clean up the house then dumped her body at Eastside Park. To create an alibi, Celestine packed her stuff and headed down to South Carolina with Aubrey and her other daughter. Charlie went elsewhere. Luckily for Aubrey, the police believe this version of events and he is declared innocent. The police retrieved the car Celestine rented for her trip down to South Carolina. So a lot is going on with this case at once. They brought in the trunk lining for testing and discovered that the padding had Tara's blood in it. Not so luckily for Wendy, they get an arrest warrant for her she was hiding out in lake city south carolina but the patterson police called the lake city police and they coordinated with each other so that they could speak with wendy they confirmed that she was not involved in the actual murder itself but she admitted to helping orchestrate it by recruiting her boyfriend charlie the police were then disturbed to learn that the insurance schemes did not begin with eugene and tara this was a hustle that celestine had been running for a while she would set fires to collect her insurance payments and Wendy was certain that Celestine had poisoned her father. Her mother had allegedly said, don't eat or drink anything I make for daddy. Police were able to bring Wendy back to New Jersey, and they reopened Alfonso Payne's case that was originally closed back in 1991. Originally, it just seemed like an overdose because all the external signs pointed to one. He had a deadly concentration of drugs in his system, and his body was found in a not-so-savory area of Patterson, so they just made the simplest conclusion. But when police dug further into the evidence, they found that the drugs in his system were neither prescribed to him nor anything you would typically buy on the street. They weren't drugs to get you high. It turns out Celestine had been secretly giving him drugs that were actually prescribed to her because he had a life insurance policy worth, wait for it, $56,000. I understand inflation has hit very hard recently, but like, come on. Again, that's all a human life is worth to you people. Alfonso had gotten the policy and, of course, named his wife, Celestine, as a beneficiary. Unfortunately for Alfonso, they were about to lose their house because they were behind on the mortgage. While their financial situation was crumbling, Celestine was seeing a psychiatrist who I'm assuming was the one who prescribed her the medication that she poisoned her husband with. Anyway, she was really miserable and kept telling her psychiatrist that she just wanted her husband dead. Once he died, her demeanor completely flipped and she was walking on sunshine. As you would probably expect... She was charged with Alfonso's murder. She was also charged with terrorist murder, conspiracy to commit murder, Eugene's attempted murder, insurance fraud, forgery, suppression of evidence, and a couple of smaller charges. Charles Pincham got nailed with the same charges. The death penalty is now being considered. On April 7, 1997, Charles Pincham accepted a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Celestine Payne, the ringleader. A month later, on May 27, 1997, the trial started. By this point, Celestine had not pled guilty and her lawyers had made no indication of wanting a plea deal. However, during jury selection, which is like the final step in getting ready for the trial to officially begin, the defense attorneys wanted to plead guilty to the entire indictment for life in prison with the eligibility for parole in 30 years. I think it finally sunk in that they had zero chance of winning this case and having a client get the death penalty is definitely a hard hit to the law career. Celestine and Charlie will be eligible for parole in 2034. Celestine was sent to prison on July 18, 1997, and is currently in a women's correctional facility in Hunterdon County. On May 28, 1997, Wendy Payne ended up pleading guilty to one count of first-degree attempted murder and two counts of conspiracy to commit murder in the second degree, and got 28 years in prison. She was released early on September 23, 2009. I have so many thoughts about this case. First and foremost, I feel awful for Tara's family. What they thought of as a safe, you know, uh, temporary housing situation turned out to be the most dangerous place Tara could have stayed. I wonder if Celestine and Wendy plotted on Tara before or after she moved in with them. How could she have ever suspected that they would do something like this to her? She had no idea that Celestine murdered her husband and children's father for less than $60,000. Desperation for money makes people do the vilest things and betray literally anyone instead of trying to do anything else to make ends meet. Tara felt like the Paines were her family. The Carters in general were super close with the Paines. Tara trusted and loved them, and she was murdered without ever knowing the truth of how they actually felt about her. I have to wonder if Wendy ever actually cared about Tara, or if her mother was so heartless that she never learned how to have a genuine relationship that wasn't based upon manipulation, coercion, and disloyalty. Her treatment specifically of Tara broke my heart. How could she sleep on at night knowing she encouraged her boyfriend to kill her best friend who was about to start a new life with her family down in Georgia? I hate that she was just about to reunite with her family, and unbridled greed prevented her from taking the next step. She stole the rest of that young woman's life from her, not realizing that there was probably a good chance she was probably the next on Celestine's hit list. The scheme was never sustainable. Insurance policies are so easy to find and they're usually the first place authorities look if someone has died. You're especially suspect if you're the beneficiary and you've cashed out on the policy. Did she just intend to kill her tenants for the rest of her life? A Dorothea Puente knockoff? Who knows? On a lighter note, I don't know where the name Charles Darby came from. Was that a fake name that Charlie Pincham only gave to Eugene Cooper? Did anyone else know him by that name? Also I don't know who pointed the police originals way but like dang, they must have really had it out for him. He was nowhere near Celestine's house at the time of the murder. Imagine not only being told your girlfriend had been murdered, but also that someone was trying to blame you for it. To be honest, I suspect it was Celestine, Wendy, or Charlie. Who else would have been so certain it was him with absolutely no proof other than they were dating? There are many things in the story that can confuse me because nothing seemed very well thought out. But then again, most of these cases don't really have much straightforward logic driving them. But anyway, guys, that is it from me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. I hope to see you all next week. Goodbye!